Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the weird and wonderful world of tabletop wargaming that we are kind of currently living in. Uh, we are in a renaissance of wonderful games. Uh, the gaming industry is just producing so many great and fun and fantastic games for us to spend our hobby dollars on that it's sometimes hard to know what to play or where to go next. Um, and this podcast really explores some of the games that we've been playing and some of the big ins and outs of the gaming industry, I guess. Uh, my name is Brad. Uh, I'm also known as Old Man Morn. And joining me tonight is a man who's no stranger to cast dice. And you can hear him rustling about a little bit in the background with his beautiful dog. Uh, of course, if there's a dog on this cast and it's not mine, it has to belong to the the handsome, unstoppable, magical, and I say magical air quotes as in the game Magic the Gathering, um, and uh, British a paratrooper player himself, the winner of Operation Bear, who has now just recently run his most recent, or our most recent event in Victoria, Lee Avery. Welcome back to Cast Ice. Thanks for having me again, Brad. It's always Anytime. good to uh, get invited back to somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, you were good. Come back. Come on. Open chair. Come on. Have a seat. Yeah, man. How you been? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, been getting a bit of hobby done lately, which has been really good. Just sort of go through ebb and flows of motivation and interest mm -hmm. and willingness to sit down at the desk and do some painting and that. And I've just sort of had a bit of a spurt in the last couple of weeks again, a bit more motivated. So I've been getting a bit of progress on a few projects, which has been good across the uh, hobby spectrum. And uh, then, yeah, as you've mentioned, just, just ran an event on the weekend a couple of days ago for 18 players running yeah. uh, Bolt Action. Nice. Now, I, I've got to... I've got to say, man, you 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 make it sound like you did a little sprinkling of hobby. You are like a one-man hobby machine that seems to be powering through projects. You're making me look bad, and you are looking good while you're doing it. Um, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to, man, because you've been killing it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've been working my British Airborne for a few years now. We've spoken about it in the cast a couple of times, mm. but finally uh, finished off the last couple of things I wanted to do for that and uh, have hung up my hobby brush on that project. So a few weeks ago, I finished off a second three-inch mortar, so I can run two mediums, and a second MMG, mm -hmm. um, just to, again, have a, an option. And, and I did that as a captured uh, German MMG from uh, Market Garden, because uh, that was one of the things in the Market Garden book. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it is rules-wise, it's still just a British MMG, but from a hobby sort of thing, did a bit of uh, cuffing and grinding and switched around the uh, ammo feeder belt over the other side with the with the guy because uh, the German version got fed in from the other side and then mm -hmm. uh, yeah, assembled that up and painted that. So I'm calling the Airborne complete uh, unless somebody releases some new models or a unit or rules or something that requires me to have a bit of a rethink, but pretty much can cover every single weapon kit out, squad kit out from any of the uh, – theater lists from for the airborne and i think it's coming in around about three thousand points all up if you add everything up individually yeah. so 
I've uh, called it quits on that. Uh, but hold on, like, that's that's not just. I mean, you say three thousand points as sort of an aside. This, I mean, you have won painting awards with this army. You, this yeah. is this is one of those things, and the entire army is painted consistently to an incredibly high standard. And it's not, and and you, uh, you know, sort of brush it off. Say, I've been working on it for a couple of years. You have. But, I mean, that is not an insignificant amount of time to have contributed to one army, to such a wide, I mean, span of models. Your airborne army is huge. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's, can, it's an incredible hobby project. Yeah, I think I've got about 50-ish base infantry painted up, maybe a little bit more. Then there's the 24 well bikes and and I've made themed objectives and there's some other bits and bobs in there as well and it's it's been an on and off project though in between other hobby yeah. hobby things as well so I might I generally you know might paint up eight to ten guys or something whether that's a combination of weapon teams or another squad or something do that and then go do something else so yeah. but anyway I finished I've put that project down as as being done now um it all fits in the one hobby bag for events so i can just carry that along with all my bits and bobs and tape measures and dice and all that sort of thing Mm -hmm. uh you know themed dice themed dice bag themed tokens (laughs) it's all it's all one package yeah Uh, yeah it's good to get that off the desk and uh i've started i've been I play War Machine as well. Uh, I've just been doing a bit of painting on that, finished off a couple little squads there, just sort of got the mojo. It's a lot different going from painting historical camo patterns, yeah. very green, brown, drab sort of stuff, uh, to painting a fantasy-style setting where you can break out some blues and some reds and some oranges. And, um, you know, the models I've been working on lately have a lot more flesh sort of um, – visible it's not just sort of hands and a face you know there's legs and arms and so a bit more work on that trying to get that right and when you talk fantasy you've got different sort of beasts and mm-hmm. um you know war machines got steam jacks and all sorts of things in it so you're dealing with a variety of stuff and it's just it's good to actually just break out colors and paint something different and do some sharp highlights and, and do something that pops uh, a bit a bit more on the table than sort of the trying to be sort of historical you know, World War Two kind of painting. So that's been good. Get a few of those projects um, done and just sort of do a, a unit or two. I've done another unit this week on that. And, and then um, the other projects that I've talked about on this podcast before as mm-hmm. well is um, my new Bolt Action Army, so it's my next project, uh, which I plan to, I suppose, launch, if you will, at CanCon in January next year, which mm-hmm. is the big Australian um, convention that we have every year for gaming and uh, Bolt Action's biggest events are held there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looking to do that. So I've been furiously assembling plastic uh, American GIs mm-hmm. and using the African-American buffalo soldier heads So and a few other parts um, from that. So I actually originally bought a couple of boxes of the – Buffalo Soldier Infantry, mm-hmm. uh, which use the old American sprues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the only way to get the heads. You can't buy the heads separately. Uh, although <laughs> I am going to email Warlord because I probably need a couple more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but I did go and buy one of the new boxes of the American Infantry as well, uh, which very different uh, bodies in a way. 
and the way the arms go together. Mm-hmm. So if someone's got the old box of American plastics, uh, effectively the arms are two separate arms and a separate weapon. So you've got to kind of get matching pairs of arms to yeah. sort of glue a weapon if you want to hold it sort of properly. But it also gives you the flexibility. You can, you know, have a guy with a holding his rifle out to the side and, and pointing. And there's a few different options there. Um, now, the arms are a little bit smaller and the bodies are slightly smaller. Uh, the other thing is that the arms, the torsos themselves, where the arms sort of positioning spots are, it's pretty much a square, uh, I suppose, if you, if you looked at it, 180 degrees, well, they're, they're quite parallel to each other, mm. the two shoulders. The newer ones. Oh, yeah, the, the old fronts, ones. Yeah. yeah, the old ones are very parallel joins. Mm-hmm. The newer ones, the front, um, I suppose, shoulder point, comes in a bit so you're looking Mm -hmm. at a sort of a i don't know the angle would be less than a a 90 degree angle kind of thing so the old arms trying to fit on the new arms if you use the old arms on the new bodies you end up with the hands being very close to each other because those shoulders are angled in Um, and the reason they've done that is they've gone to a lot of um, prepared arms so the arms and the weapons are all one piece on the sprue yeah. So when you cut it off and then you just slip it on. Now, the other thing is it's also slightly wider because the torsos are just a touch bigger. So if you try putting the new arms on an old torso, you end up with gaps yeah, because you, you can sort of stick one side. But because it's expecting an angle, it's angled slightly, but it's more of a, a squared off on the old torsos. So I've got a bit of gap filling to do. Is <laughs> the short story there right um, to do that. But I, I've managed to... Assemble my tank, my weapons teams, 46 infantry guys for the four units. Yep. And then a couple of weapons teams, LT, and a couple of medics, chaplain, and a few other bits and bobs. So the only thing I haven't done yet is make my objective markers, which uh, currently I've got most of the parts there. I had a parts order turn up this week nice. and I'm just waiting on a warlord order that's currently shipping. That's got a few bits in it as well. Now so I, have that's a, all coming together. I have a question for you because you mm. are using the old metal heads on the new plastic bodies. I know from when yes. I was assembling my Japanese great coat army and mixed matching arms from a number of warlord kits, that the heads were often a bigger problem. Trying to match heads to bodies was sometimes a bigger hassle than getting the arms to match. Do the metal heads from the old Buffalo Soldiers match the new bodies? Yeah, I haven't had any problems with heads at all. Oh, good. Um, I had one snap off on me on the weekend, but that's probably because I grabbed the head and as I lifted, I probably pinched and mm-hmm. flexed off the shoulders. <laughs> that's my own fault. Um, but yeah, no, they've they've all they've all been fitting into the sockets fine. I haven't Good. sort of come across any problems. I think they're probably designed because Warlord use there there is a whole range of metal heads there available for head swaps and particularly artillery crews and things like that tend to come weapon crews come with mm-hmm. a lot of different head options. I think they've probably made the uh, plastic gap the right size. Yeah. So yeah, I certainly haven't didn't have any issues. I did have some issues with some of the British ones though. Uh, the old-style Jeep, yeah. the body for that had a very small uh, neck hole mm-hmm. and it was a very high-button shirt, so it was just this tiny little socket. And the actual head that came with it had the tiny little neck bit. Um, so trying to do head swaps with that 
didn't really work. And if you bought separate metal heads from the range, they were much too big. They just looked ridiculous yeah. on that smaller body. But um, the uh, guys on the bikes, um, the well bikes all came with separate heads as well, but there was only two choices there. But I did do some swaps there with some of my artillery crew heads just to sort of mix up and get a bit of variety through the through the different units. Yeah, because, I mean, I think that's a hangover from back when Warlord bought the original bolt-action range. Um, yeah. Some of their oldest lines were actually made prior to Warlord owning bolt-action. I mean, clearly War Warlord made the bolt-action game. But um, mm. previous to that, they bought the bolt-action the range themselves. of figures. Yeah, and then they added yeah. to it. Um, and they've added an unbelievable number of models. And over time... Um, Warlord's gone from sort of matching their old their own style to sort of innovating, and I mean some of the newest models, for example, um, a lot of the new Winter models, the new Winter Germans, the new Winter American models are fantastic, but they're slightly different scale from some of the original original bolt action models. They're slightly smaller, better detail, I think, um, probably cleaner castings because the molds are newer. Um, yeah, but. Uh, they're both great. They're just different. Um, so if you try yeah. and match between, and once you base them and you have them in an army, they're not going to necessarily look different because, you know, they're different sizes humans. But if you try and take the head from one of those models and put it on another dude, all of a sudden, you know, the the, the model's not within scale within itself. Um, and you can mix and match those models between squads without a problem. It's not like you're trying to mix parry with... Um, artisan like that sticks out unbelievably yeah um, it's like I, I think yeah. the, the, the big thing with, with that is if you're going to do a new army is get those different guys together all at once and, and yeah. you know, buy some artisan guys or some black tree and and um, or here 46 now it's putting out a few different things get all your different guys that you're going to get from different manufacturers and mix your squads up at the start yeah. Because what's happened with me is I bought a bunch of Warlord stuff at the start. I ended up picking up a few Black Tree figures and did them up as different units. And when you put them on the table, they look very different. But if they'd been mixed through the squads, yeah. probably wouldn't be as noticeable. And it'd just be a variation in, oh, this guy's a little bit bigger. But hey, people come in all shapes and sizes. But yeah. you don't sort of get that when you've got specific units from different manufacturers standing next to each other. It just sticks out a little bit. So yeah. trying to blend it from the start if you're going to start a new army or you've just got to stick with the one range. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my Germans, my original German army that I was actually preparing for Operation Hoff um, were a mix when I originally bought them were, of course, the original Warlord uh, plastic Germans, which I bought boxes of when they were brand new. Prior to bolt action coming out, I was going to use them for Imperial Guard models for um, 40K. And then bolt action came out. And of course, then I was like, well, I have these models. I might as well play Germans. Um, so I got more of them. Um, but then I bought a bunch of the metal heads that you're talking about. And those heads match those models. Um, so they worked really well. But then, of course, I mixed in um, a couple of blisters of assault group. Uh, guys with submachine guns and assault rifles because assault rifles were fairly rare to come by in that original plastic set um, because Warlord hadn't made their additional spruce of them yet. And then I got, um, I added a couple of 
Crusader Germans and um, a few other poses just to get variety so it wasn't the same five poses over and over again. And I know that's what you strive for. Um, But once they're all together, they all blend beautifully. Um, But I think think you're right. I painted, I sort of accumulated all those models at once and then painted them as as a group. Um, I think if I tried to paint them now, man, they would stick out. Uh, oh, and I have artisan guys in there as well. But yeah, I really like that army. And um, as I was pulling it back out for Hoff, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I know I talked at one point about rebasing this force. So I, I might do that. Um, but I think what I'm going to do, if if I, if I the madness takes me at some point, is knock the arms off of about half of them because... Um, the one criticism I've have of that original Warlord kit um, was that the rifles were sort of really thin and like they're almost needle thin. It was the first kit Warlord did in plastics. Yeah. And so the, what they do now and they, what they did even in like the kit after that was to, to rectify that. They couldn't, of course, correct the original kit because, you know, the tooling had already been done. So I have a, I have a mountain of plastic rifles now. Now I can replace maybe half of those rifles with the arms the way they are and it would be, wouldn't be a problem. But for some of those, I just literally just have to knock the arms off, get rid of the arms, and then take arms from newer German models, stick them on, um, and as you say, gap fill or shave to get it to fit. And then I don't have to paint an entire new German army. I just have to paint maybe 10 or 12 pairs of arms, um, which, you know, even my slow state, I could get done in, you know, three or four good nights painting. Uh, and the army would then have a ton of new variety in posing. Um, and I really like that army. I spent a really long time painting it. And I'd like to have it, quote unquote, done. Um, and I know I've said it's done before, but given all the same sameness of the posing um, for some of the models. And I, to be honest, I wanted to put a lot of time in those. And I, I tried to put all my time in on painting. And I'm, I'm really happy with how the army looks. But in retrospect, looking back... I did not really pose them very well. They are all posed the same, you know? And, and so it's like, wow, I really didn't help myself. Now there are some, some models that I did and I'm really happy with, like there's some guys running and I got, and I, I customized some of the arms. So rather than holding their arm, their gun to the side, like it's throwing a grenade and then holding the rifle vertically instead of horizontally, for example. And I really like that. And I used one of the American rifles, that was much beefier, and I, I think that model's perfect. Just I need to make the rest of them look, in my mind, that good. Um, and I might pop a couple heads off, too, and put some of the new German heads on, maybe work in a couple of the new German plastics, uh, maybe you know five or six of them, because Whirler keeps having these wonderful sprue sales, and I keep picking up, oh, I'll get another two sprues of Germans here, maybe an SS sprue there. Now, I'm not going to play an SS army, but those bits are great for my existing German army. Anyway, so I was getting all this ready for Hoff. Um, I was really excited. I pulled out a ton of vehicles that I'd had sitting in a box, um, and I came up with an entire mounted army and was thinking, great, I'm going to have a ton of trucks. 
I customized a multi-air to have a heavy autocannon on the back because I found pictures of this thing and it kind of matched an entry in the German book and was thinking, no one has one of these. It's going to be fun. It's going to be cool. Um, I got a Humber, a Humber 4x4 field car that I was going to paint in German colors with the Iron Cross on the doors and call it looted and just get, you know, get kind of crazy with it. And then we were talking and you said, you know, you had an abundance of German players. And I went, well, I, I've got this mostly finished Soviet army. Um, and so I dropped and switched. To be fair, the, the Soviets probably were easier because I only had to paint like 14 infantry models and touch up a couple vehicles. But for those of you who know how slow I am as an infantry painter, um, there's a reason I don't often paint infantry. Uh, I'm dead slow at it. I think I probably would have been faster painting the seven vehicles. Um, but I got the army done late the night before, and I got to go to Operation Hoff. So um, I'm very thankful that you asked me to uh, switch over, or you at least said, hey, I've got this problem, and I offered to switch over because um, I finished my snowsuit army which um started out as fins in snowsuits you guys may remember me talking about winter onesies way back when that army i've literally been painting models for for five years it is now done it is in the case it is completely finished and it's soviets and snowsuits um now you might say fins and soviets that's sort of sacrilegious well there weren't really soviets and snow troop suits models until recently and if you actually look at the pictures in the Soviet book of the guys in the white, sort of white smocks over their uniforms, the models are perfect. Um, they're a perfect representation of that. So I don't apologize for using some thin models in snowsuits to, you know, same hats, same white smocks, very similar rifles. I, I can't tell them apart. And I cut a bunch of the submachine guns and the rifles off and replaced them with Soviet gear so they look soviety i don't know what what did you think lee yeah i think the whole force ties together well i and, um i think you know there's plenty of people out there with all sorts of proxies and counts as and yeah. here's my matchbox truck that's actually a truck you know a half track or whatever um yeah so yeah I, I, the to the winter and like, let's be honest how many different ways can you make a onesie for winter operations yeah. they're all pretty damn similar um yeah. so yeah and it comes across and i think the white certainly stands out a lot um certainly on a traditional sort of world war ii table they certainly stick out a bit yeah there was a lot of there's a lot of jokes because i did have some of the warlord models of guys on skis um, and, um, I, you know, I had one got one squad on skis cause I really wanted to, um, back in the day, Dave of war, I used to needle them about skis and like, Oh, I can put skis on my troop. So I put skis on my troops. Um, but then of course I didn't plan any white boards cause we were playing Bagration and that's in the summer. So, um, we joked around that, um, you know, how do you go on, go up a hill on skis? You go sort of go side by side, like little baby steps sideways or you go up V. So I was like, Oh yeah, my guys are walking up the hill in a V. Um, so yeah, it was, it looked a little visually strange sometimes, but man, they, that white, because there weren't any white boards, they popped. Um, yeah. Your opponent can never accuse you of trying to hide your models in rubble. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for damn sure. 
Well, let's start talking about Operation Hoff itself then. Since we're talking about the armies, let's talk about the event. So tell us, this is your brainchild, man. Um, You've mentioned it before, but now that you've run it, walk us through what is Operation Stop the Hoff. Yeah, so this is a idea that's sort of been bubbling away in the back of my head now for a few years. Uh, I picked up probably, well, let's say, eight to ten years ago, um, some old Flames of War campaign box sets that they produced. Yeah. And they did one for Market Garden. They did one for Bagration. Uh, I picked those two up. I'm not sure if they did any others. Uh, they were the only two that I ended up seeing and buying myself. Uh, but in fact, they're really actually quite well-produced little boxes from Battlefront. Uh, they came with sort of these large fold-out, full-colour maps that are sort of like board game-type boards, so they're quite durable. And they've got maps of the, the relevant things. So the Bagration box has – it's sort of more of a larger-scale map with sort of cities, mm-hmm. and it's sort of split up into little zones and provinces, and it shows you the original uh, line that the Germans and the Russians had as sort of the armoured – sort of line uh, in the June of 44 on a particular date. And then it shows you the secondary line of where the Russians made it to like five days later. And the idea of it uh, in the box, you've got a campaign booklet and it's got a whole bunch of background information. It's it's really well produced. It's like a normal army book kind of thing. It's, it's full color and it's, it's got all sorts of info in it. Um, And basically it's a series of link campaigns and it's got this sort of reserve system and it's designed for uneven fights. So, you wouldn't be playing, you know, equal points as such. It's designed to be sort of slanted towards an attacker or defender, depending on the scenarios and, and that sort of thing. Uh, they also came with dice, uh, tokens, uh, little red plastic arrows for people to indicate where they're heading or where they've, you know, sort of moved from. Mm-hmm. And then a whole bunch of sort of scale models. Uh, now, they're not the 15 or Flames of War scale. I would say they're probably more like uh, 6 mil maybe eight mil, six or eight mil scale, probably six I would lean towards. Yeah. They so a looked, bunch of tanks. They looked a lot no, like, they, they looked a lot like the ones that are in, um, of course, now that we talked over each other, now the I can't micro, remember. Uh, well, um, what's the access and allies? Yeah. They're quite small. Yes. Uh, but then they had some standard sort of single troops that were obviously 15 mil scale as well mm. in some of the sets. So, so yeah, anyway, the, the boxes come with a lot of different things and I've mm. had them sitting in the cupboard for a long time. Uh, the market garden one is actually a much more, I suppose, zoomed in map. So rather than sort of being sort of a broader, here's Minsk and Vladivostok and a whole bunch of big cities, it's actually zoomed in and you've literally got uh, it's sort of portrait layout so it's sort of north to south kind of layout and it's literally got the different bridges and it's only got like yeah um arnhem and a couple of the other i can't remember the names off the top of my head but it's only got a few of those sort of towns that were sort of part of the the goals of what they wanted to sort of capture mm-hmm. uh, but it's also got on there the specific landing zones where different forces landed. So here's where the 80, 82nd um, Airborne landed. Here's where the 101st landed. Here's where the 1st Polish and the the 1st um, British, you know, here's their landing zones. And it's then got the 30th Armoured Corps um, coming in from the south. And then it also shows where different elements of German reinforcements came in from as well. So from a 
if you're running a campaign using that system, you can actually set it up and say, okay, well, you know, opening turn, here's where the various allies drop and people can run themed armies and that sort of stuff. So my idea that I sort of had bubbling away was to run a campaign day and use those maps to sort of show a visual visual representation of outcomes of the battles that players are fighting. Often you go to a tournament for, for games, you play three games, you get to the end of it and you go... Oh, yeah, I scored 53 points, and yeah. that's sort of your outcome. Uh, this sort of puts a bit of narrative behind it. Uh, we split players up into two pools, or four pools effectively, but sort of said, well, Market Garden was uh, Western Front, Bagration was Eastern Front. Uh, let's have a, a force of Russians attacking with some Germans defending, mm-hmm. and then on the Western Front, same thing, you know, allies attacking, Germans defending. So we split the German players basically into an east and west, so they fought in the relevant theatres. So effectively two things going on at once. And then at the end of each round, based on results, so an attacking player won, they got to move forwards effectively across the map. And then if they had a draw, they basically stayed there but were still in an attacking position. If they lost and flipped the arrows around... And if the Germans then, if they then lost their next round, they were then going to get it pushed back. Effectively, it could be pushed off the map or, or pushed back, you know, further along the map. Um, so it was it was sort of a bit of balance, a bit of visual representation as well. Throughout mm-hmm. the day, I was updating the map as results were coming in. People were coming up, taking a bit of interest in, oh, how are we going? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the guys there, his uh, partner's actually from Minsk in Russia. And so he was on the southern flank as a Russian player and he was pretty keen to make it to Minsk. He's like, I'll get in trouble if I don't sort of get there by the end of the day. Um, he needed three wins to do it and he, he got through. So it was a good result for him. I think he was motivated to, to get there. But, uh, yeah, and the Market Garden was quite interesting as well. Um, you know, dropped, literally placed the, the various forces. We had some US Airborne, we had Polish Airborne, we had British Airborne. So they were able to, I was able to place them on the various drop zones that were relevant to those forces. Uh, we asked people to use the theatre lists and try and theme it around those particular operations where they could. Uh, and we had quite a few players that actually sort of went out of their way to balance it out and um, particularly the airborne guys, they certainly embraced it and, um, you know, none of them are running around with tanks and stuff. They literally just took what the airborne had. Um, Russians were a bit more mixed in in what was kicking around Uh, and the Germans, most of them were taking late war stuff. They were all pretty much in theme as well. Uh, There was a couple of of tigers on the table, the king Mm -hmm. tigers as well. Um, so we had a few of the big cats, uh, various, I think, performance on a few of those. I think those big tanks, when they do well, they do really well. Oh, yeah. When they're not great, they're terrible. No, so they're terrible. <laughs> I, know, I know watching one game, uh, Scott was playing and his tiger rolled in from reserves and promptly rolled a one on his uh, low fuel. So literally rolled on the table and stopped and sat there for the rest of the game. So still had a reasonable field of fire, but it sort of took him out of putting pressure on in a way. Um, So yeah, different stuff. So yeah, the two different fronts as well. I ran two different sets of missions. So those fighting on the Western front had different missions to those fighting on the Eastern front. Uh, We utilized a mix of the rulebook missions and the BAA.net missions yep. um, that were sort of refined back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the general idea behind that, the Market Garden ones are more 
objective based sort of capturing stuff because I was trying to capture the bridges. Um, Eastern Front, basically, the first one was really an assault. I think um, trying to break out. I think it was. Um, yes. You know the idea that the German, the, the Russians are trying to break through the German lines, and then the following missions were really around then taking ground. So uh, and then finished up with sectors. I think we finished them up on. So really around. Let's break it and then get through and then capture ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the other one was really more around. Well, we've got to capture this bridge or the objective. So trying to theme it around that. So that was interesting as well. Um, I think as an event organiser, having six different missions over one day, um, particularly when you've got two different playgroups playing different missions at the same time, uh, probably not the best idea because you're getting questions around different missions and just having to sit down and, and yeah. read through them and that sort of thing. Um, now, the other, the other thing that was a bit different was we ran variable points limits. Uh, so I attended Wintercon uh, in July, mm-hmm. so last month, um, as part of my honeymoon. Uh, and uh, best Pink honeymoon West ever. Year, best honeymoon ever. Just went gaming for a few days. It was great. And Pete West ran it this year with variable points level, so a de-escalation event. So we started with big points on the first game, and then we played lower point games throughout the day, which was actually really good for the mental strain on your brain mm. as you go through the day. So I thought we could do something similar for this event. And so effectively everyone started, we had asked people to make lists for 800,000 and 1,200 points. Mm-hmm. And we started off with uh, 1,000 points, so in the middle. And then effectively if you lost your first game, uh, with any sort of Swiss pairings uh, as much as possible within the, there's two different east and west fronts. Uh, so if you had, you know, a German lost and a, a Russian lost, they'd get paired up in the second round. And because you'd lost, you then played with 800 points. And if you won, you'd go play with 1,200. So depending on your performance would depend on what your next game value was. Um, good idea in theory. I think in practice, um, given the size of the player pool, uh, what happened was we ended up having, like, the Russians literally throughout the whole day just steamrolled the Germans. So they were all on lots of wins and the Germans were on lots of losses. So trying to pair things up and keep it even wasn't yeah. uh, wasn't easy. Uh, so a few people, I think generally, a couple of people ended up having a 1,200-point game, but most people were playing 1,000 points and 800. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the last round, just time-wise, we ended up just running over time. We, we started a bit late. Lunch ran over a bit as well, and then um, we just sort of rolled on. So the last round, I basically said, let's just play 800 points, just in the interest of time, just because I uh, didn't want people sitting there till late in the night. So, um, yeah, I think a few people got their 1,200-point lists out, but mostly it was 800,000. So I think in the future, maybe just keep it at that um, points level because also people picking out different lists every game, having to sort of – it's slowed them down a bit as well as far mm. as getting prepped. So just sort of from an event management point of view, uh, novel idea, worth having a crack, but or do the Pete West thing and literally say first round is going to be this many, second round this many, third round this many. Yeah. That might have been better and then people could have had stuff prepped and ready a bit easier rather than them finding out as they're getting paired up what they're going to be playing. Yeah, I could see it going either way. I mean, um, I, I mean, as a player, I really enjoyed playing in the event. I thought it was great. Um, I did not have a good start to the event. Turns out you should probably play your army once or twice before showing up to these things. 
um, or at least have played in the last couple of months. <clears throat> so um, yep. I uh, I played. Um, well, uh, let me quickly say what was in my list, and then um, we'll go through it. Um, so my thousand point list was a lieutenant with a friend, um, six SMG guys who rode around in a Kamsamolets, the little artillery tractor that holds six guys. Um, I had a guard squad with eight bros um, that had a couple of submachine guns. Um, I had a commissar with a buddy. I had two other guard squads. There were eight guys. Uh, one had a mach- one submachine gun. The other one had two submachine guns. Um, I had two anti-tank rifles. I had an SU-152 with no machine gun additional, just the usual one. And I had three trucks with machine guns on them. Um, you'll notice that for a Soviet list, there was no free squad. Um, I avoided um, the free squad because I didn't think it fit my mounted theme and I didn't buy a truck for them. Um, and I also... I did have a couple Panzerfausts in the list, um, but then I forgot to paint them because I was in a rush to paint the army, and so I just never ran them on the day. Um, so I actually was like 30 points down, or not 30, like 20 points down, um, and I didn't take the free squad. So did I feel hampered by this? No. Um, I think in my first game I played Nick Beatty. We grudged, um, and we wanted to do the old, the big uh, rematch. Um, so he took his King Tiger list, and I brought the 152, of course, the the big big cat hunter, and we set up on the board. Um, and as you were saying, we were playing Breakout, which was a kill point mission, um, but where you got bonus points for getting into your opponent's deployment. And we were playing on a crossroads with some some woods and some hills, and was thinking, this is great. I'm gonna get in, I'm gonna get around his big tank because he's gonna deploy it and then leave it. Um because he had the low fuel rule and was thinking, look at me go. And um, I think the game went fairly well until I tried to bring my 152 on in heavy cover to take a pot shot at his tiger, and I forgot to take the height of the hill into account. And so I rolled it on and was I took my shot. Um, I missed, and then Nick took his return shot, and I... We took a look, and um, I really should have thought about this in advance. Um, I, you know, was having such a good time playing with Nick, and I hadn't played in a while that I actually hadn't really put my head down to the table. And when I actually looked from his tank, my tank was wide open, um, which pretty much, you know, he he kept hitting um, my tank, um, penetrating it because it's super heavy AT gun. But then he kept rolling a one, so my tank kept going down with two pins. Um, finally, he missed, and I was able to rally and get my tank out of the way. But that basically, it basically his his uh, king tiger then was able to bully my army with its machine guns, with tiger fear, and with its super heavy AT gun. Um, and I had a few. I guess I had one bad roll with tiger fear. Um, which I don't mind. I mean, it didn't ruin the game. It was just one bad turn, but it kind of stalled. So it meant that I couldn't get hit in his deployment. So he he very soundly beat me. He played it well. Um, and I, you know, I don't think I played terribly, but I think that that one really stupid mistake with the one five two early on in the game hampered me. I really should have uh, put my head down at the table. It was a rookie maneuver. I can't believe I did it, but um, 
yeah, I, I can't complain. I had a wonderful game. And, uh, yeah, it was great. And then I went on and played uh, another gentleman, Peter, who I'd never played before, um, a fine gentleman uh, who's also playing Germans, of course. And I played him in The Wreckage of a City, which was great. I hadn't played on that board either. Uh, and we played Sectors. And uh, we ended up drawing um, very close on kill points. I think he pipped me by one. Um, but he was able to get all of his vehicles and one of his squads into my deployment zone. Um, and I had a couple of squads with one pin that um, were on the edge of his or half into his, but because they weren't all the way in, I didn't get the three points instead of the one. So um, even if I'd gotten in, I think we probably still drawn. I just would have been on the other side of that draw. So, again, great game. Had a really wonderful time. And then I played Thorvald in the last round on Nick Beatty's um, Fall of Berlin board, which was, um, you know, a lot of people have talked about it. I know that it's been mentioned on a couple of podcasts. Uh, one or two people have bemoaned playing on it, saying that it, it really blocks line of sight and it's really dense because there's this giant diagonal row of buildings sort of across the middle of the board. But man, I loved that board. Um, I thought it was fantastic tactically because there were um, sort of laneways and avenues and alleys that you had to maneuver around if you're to get at your opponent. Um, and we were playing, oh, I can't think of which one it was, but it's the mission where there's one objective in the middle and then sort of two diagonal um, objectives across from one another and you need to yeah. get your opponents and defend your own and it just meant that it made for really tactical maneuvering um, to get around in and around those buildings and um, yeah I, I just had a wonderful game and then um, it was close but I was able to hold the center objective against Thorvald so I pulled that so at the end of the game or at the end of the day I should say I went one loss one draw and one win so um yeah, I spent most of the day playing with my 800-point list. Um, but uh, that that was fine because the 800 list basically dropped out the um, 152 and replaced it with the SU-76i, which um, the amazing Jacob Lotz uh, converted for me a couple years ago. And I painted, and just it was really nice to put it on the table, um, which is um, basically a, 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 the Soviets took captured oh panzer threes um and built a superstructure on top and put um the same gun that was in the su-76 in it um which is the variable gun that could be fired as a light howitzer or a medium at gun um and yeah it was just an enclosed it was like a stug almost um with a smaller gun um and it was just a lot of fun to drive around uh lighter armor but um, I'd never really, I mean, I'd played a few funzy little games with it, but it was sitting with this army that had been waiting to be finished, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. I'm, I, I'm just glad that I was able to get it out and get it down with the rest of the army, and yeah, it was great. So, yeah, I, yeah, uh, I, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I was sending uh, some of the other boys little photo updates during the day, and I sent them a little picture of, of your corner of the map, and I said, Brad's been in the same spot the whole day, <laughs> been able to break out across the yeah. German lines. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I was the, uh, you, you were talking about the wild success of the Soviets, and I kept thinking, <laughs> except me, 
but nah, it was look. Uh, of all the bolt action events I've played in in the last couple of years, and I've played in quite a few, um, this is look, man. I'm gonna say it. Um, I think this has been my favorite, and I'm not just saying because it's been the most recent one. Um, I have not had a lot of fun with some of the more competitive aspects of the hobby in uh, recent years, and your event had just such a, a laid back, nice atmosphere. Um, and it, I mean, I think you had that barbecue in the middle of the event lunch, you were literally out there working the grill. Um, it was just a wonderful, it was, it was in a bowls club. So, you know, there was beer and people were just kicking back and laughing. I had a wonderful day and, um, it has really reinvigorated my, my, uh, love of the hobby and, um, yeah, reminded me why I do this. So, um, as a player and as someone who was, you know, drowning in a bit of work and negativity, I have to say uh, I really appreciated you running that, man. Thank you. No problems. Now, I've spoken to a lot of people and I've heard a lot of good things. Um, what is it? Or, as TO, though, I mean, you have to have a sort of a wide idea of did people have a good time? Um, what worked? What didn't? Um Given that this was sort of Victoria's first really big narrative event, um, what were your big takeaways? I know you've mentioned a few already. Um, what would you suggest um, to people who want to do a narrative event? Yeah, I think the first thing is pick a pick a theatre that's of interest mm. and get your hands on a map. Now, I had some pre-made maps, obviously, from Battlefront. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just hit the internet and you know, go get something printed up at A2 size or A3 or something and, mm-hmm. and make it probably A2, A3 is going to be way too tiny. But get something printed up, draw on it, whatever. You know, if you want to do a Western Desert campaign, go get a picture of North Africa and squiggle around some sectors or whatever. Um, have something that's sort of got, I suppose, theatre options as well in regards to listings so people mm-hmm. can actually – if they want to participate or they want to you know, go that extra mile, they can actually make something that's quite themey. Um, so having a broad, I suppose, theatre sector as well, like if you decide, oh, we're going to fight, um, you know, the US invasion of Japan or Guadalcanal mm. or something, you're going to be limited to, okay, well, if you're not US Marines or Japanese Army, it's going to exclude a lot of players um, or it's going to be very well. It's not really historical. It doesn't really get a theme along. Um, The reason I did market garden and bagration on the same thing was it's pretty much all the major players. Yeah. If somebody wanted to bring something else that wasn't, was happy to do that and allocate them just as as gap fillers. Um, The only one we had was uh, Rob Rennie's Indian uh, company, um, so we just had him on the Commonwealth side. Um, mm-hmm. I basically made him 30th core because he had a couple of little, um, what do you call them, brain carriers. He did. So, you know, that's, you know that's, that's the army he's got, so that's what he was using, so that's fine. Um, I think the other good, yeah, we've certainly got quite a few players, you're probably the worst of them, that have multiple armies. Huh, so what do you mean? <laughs> this, sort of event, <laughs> this sort of event means that, you know, I know that um, – Tristan went out an airborne army to Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was so he could have something, he wanted something a bit more themed. Um, so, yeah, I think it's 
probably thinking about those kinds of things, depending on your player group and, and what's sort of available. Um, I can certainly put out there. I was happy to lend the airborne to anyone mm-hmm. if, who wanted to run a British airborne list. Um, so that's the thing, looking at your timings, missions, um, trying to pick it up. I, I spend a little bit of time reading through different missions that were available, Rawlk and the big A ones, mm-hmm. um, to try and pick out stuff that was sort of – to me made sense i hope the players sort of felt like it made sense mm-hmm. and that i positioned it on the day um and it's really around just organization making sure you've got a venue making sure you've got putting a player cap in place is what i did uh, yeah. we didn't end up hitting the player cap unfortunately but it just it helps give you a guide in regards to how many tables you're going to need because we wanted tables that would represent Europe. You know, it meant that didn't really want to bring in a desert table or a snow table or a Pacific table kind of thing because mm-hmm. it wouldn't fit the narrative of the day. Um, so we did quite well. It was all European tables. Only one of them had snow on it. Um, thanks for bringing it along. Um, hey. But yeah, and then adding in, I think probably it's really around just giving it a go. If you're interested in doing it, mm. it's just a little bit of organization, a little bit of thought, and then making it happen. Um, we put on a barbecue, uh, mostly that's because of the venue, had a barbecue available, um, not something we usually have at most venues. Mm-hmm. Usually players disappear at lunchtime and then you right. know, a couple of people turn up late for your next round and that. Yeah. So it was good to actually have that at the venue. Uh, meant we could put a barbie on as part of a package deal to everyone. Um, we also, I should really mention, uh, we were sponsored by War and Peace Games. Oh, Ian yeah. and John helped us out with some prize support, which was really great. Um, so, and we had a good variety of stuff there as well for people to pick from. Um, most of the events we run here in Victoria, it's not like, Hey, you came first, here's your prize for first. Um, mm-hmm. we generally have a prize table and we just put all the prizes out and effectively, um, you know, if you come first, you go up and you get to pick first and you pick an item and, and then they just sort of work your way through. Mm-hmm. Um, because this wasn't, a, I suppose, a, competitive event in that sense uh i i made some certificates up for the for a number of awards i literally shuffled those certificates up you did at the end of the day and and then we basically just drew them off said the order that's going to be and then once we'd sort of handed those out then just said to everyone else come up and pick up pick something up for yourself um just for the rest of the players so um we had yeah i had eight awards uh, and because i was running two different it's sort of like a lot of double ups. So, um, in regards to sort of best general, um, we picked best general Russia, Allies, East Germany, West Germany. Mm-hmm. So, sort of one from each side in each theatre. Um, now we ended up, um, you know, that that sort of takes up a, a reasonable amount of the player base. Uh, best painted was player voted, and we did uh, best painted German and best painted rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, now yourself picked up the rest of the world. And yeah. our best painted German went to Nick Beatty. Nick Beatty, yes. Good. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, no worries. Um, and now both of those votes, uh, you both pipped the other person by one one vote. So Ooh. most, uh, yeah, there was sort of real two clear ally people and two clear German people mm-hmm. with the votes. And then a couple other people picked up a vote here and there as well. So they were all player voted. Um, and so that was good. And that leads to with two other awards. Oh, Hannah swag. So yeah. best themes. Um, so for 
the Allies uh, that went to Richard yep. for his American Airborne. Um, they were well themed for the Market Garden selectors and mm-hmm. didn't take anything um, that wasn't sort of relevant. And the other one was JL um, with his Germans. Um, he took the difference, I suppose, with him was each of his lists were quite different. He took a wide variety of tanks. He had a different sort of main tank in each list and um, he just took a real variety of stuff mm-hmm. for the the different lists, which I thought was ambitious. Um, plus he sort of ties it together really well with a, a nice paint job and theme and, and that sort of thing coming Absolutely. together. So he picked up that award. So when sort of, yeah, just under half the players walked away with an award and then uh, yeah, everyone sort of got to take something home as well. So Hopefully that inspires some uh, some new armies of some people. Yeah. Um, there was a bit of a few different terrains there. There was a couple of um, houses there from um, Knights of Dice as well. They led us from Normandy range. Um, and the only interest, actually interesting thing packing up at the end of the day because there was a few prizes left, uh, which was roll into the next event. Um, but nobody picked up the French Gumia squad from the North Africa. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. If, if Patch or Brian had been there, I'm sure they would have been snappled up. But oh, yeah. uh, locally, doesn't seem to be much love for the French. Ooh, see, I I think those would have been snaffled up. Um, Lockie from the Bacon Burgers was supposed to uh, borrow my Germans after I switched to Soviets. And um, mm. he was, I had my army packed. It was in the case. It was ready to go. And he messaged me a couple days before and said he couldn't make it. But uh He's working on free French. Had um, yep. had he been there, I bet those would have gone right out the door. Well, they're rolling to the next event, so if he turns up, he's got the chance. There you go. Well, I I have to say, um, I found the event. As I said, it was just it was relaxed. It was just it was the exact kind of event I needed. The the players I played were were high quality, um, and yet really laid back. It was it was wonderful. I I had a great time. And you've inspired me. I I had planned to maybe do a, a Conflict Forty Seven event before the end of the year, um, but then sort of after Operation Bear was so big, um, I, I kind of burnt me out a little bit. In that, um, yeah, yeah, I had a lot of resubs at the last minute. Um, I had a little bit of player drama after the fact because people wanted to look up, you know, votes for different things, and it was just. It was a bit much, um, yeah. to be honest. But your event has really kind of... I, I mean, I don't want to copy you, um, and I'm not sure if you're taking pictures of your dog at the moment, but um, <laughs> I heard the, the click of your phone. Um, uh, I was just thinking, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do a narrative event. So if you don't mind me biting your style... Um, I might do a Western desert theme thing. Now I am concerned, as you say, that you don't want to exclude a lot of people because most people's armies aren't desert. Um, but I do personally own three desert armies, the Otto Sahariana, the, my Sikh army, um, and my DAC and was thinking, you know, I could loan a couple of these out. So what I'm thinking is having an event, um, keeping it small, um, maybe about the size of what you ran or smaller, um, have it run it in the city at Good Games because I love the venue and those guys really know how to support, um, you know, a, a TO and an event. And um, 
maybe uh, maybe do half desert and do half something else. Uh, your event really inspired me to run that you could run two simultaneous small events within an event. Um, and I might try it. I've never done that before. Um, I would have probably said, Ooh, I'm not sure if that would work. Um, but then seeing you run it beautifully on the day, man, you, you rocked it. So if you don't mind, I may uh, pick your brain a little and try and get some desert love going in Victoria in uh, late September, early October. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, if you're going to, if you want to do sort of desert, I think there's probably, as you said, you've got three armies. I think there's probably yeah. within the community and enough desert sort of forces floating around as well. But I think you'd probably get a reasonable response in regards to numbers. Yeah. I think it'd be a case of maybe not necessarily running two events of <clears throat> six or eight people or whatever side by side, but see how much you can max out your desert first, yeah, and then. Exactly. If there's extra people on top, then and sort of fill it in from there. But like I said, print off a map of North Africa in the 1940s mm-hmm. and get your Sharpie out and um, mark up some sectors. Well, that got I've me... got the arrows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that got me thinking, because um, I know a number of people have German and American armies as well. Um, and given that, you know, folks like JL are so historically minded... If you also added Italy to the North African, or sorry, the West Africa, or so the Western Desert campaign, um, you could, and you know, you you loosen it a little bit. Um, a that would give you a chance to have some variety in the tables, so they're not all super desert all the time. But it would also allow players that maybe have a generic German army to maybe dial down the late war and dial up the mid war. Um, and then, you know, maybe paint an extra couple guys and a, a new vehicle and Shazam, you've, you, you're trying something new and you're having a different experience and you're playing different types of armies. I have nothing against late war. I like late war as much as the next guy. I just would like to do something that's sort of deserty and that would fit that sort of time period. Um, so yeah, yeah I don't know. Certainly adding Crete, Sicily, and Italy, you exactly. know, sort of that. Mediterranean area plus North Africa, and that is certainly fitting theme without a hassle. And, and I know quite a few of the guys have um, forces that would certainly fit into those. And oh, I know yeah. a few, well, a couple of people at the moment actually I know are building forces for Italy, myself included. My uh, buffalo is mm-hmm. actually for Italy. Uh, Pedro's working on his Italian paratroopers. Mm-hmm. I know uh, one of the other guys the other day was saying he's building a German casino base list. Um, yeah. So yeah, you've certainly got a few options there. And uh, someone else was doing Crete German Fulcrumjäger as well. Oh, that would be so cool. Would love to see those armies on the tabletop. And if you, you know, get mm. like me, I never, well, I don't never say never, but actually having the event to paint the models for are, is just a great, um, you know, Kickstarter. Yeah, motivator to get people to get things going and get things done. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that's my plan of attack. And, uh, the other thing is I have to say, I've won a lot of trophies for a lot of events over the years. Um, not so much recently, much more when I was younger and more competitive. Uh, but I've never won a best painted ever. So I'm incredibly happy about that. So yeah, pretty, pretty excited. Um, yeah, it was it was nice, and I had put together this giant um, display board, and I had actually 
because you know there's a lot of debate about display boards and whatnot um on through the land of misfit toys slash the home of cast dice um facebook page i know some people had contacted me through that um and so i put some pictures up and started some online debate and some you know a lot of people said it doesn't matter some people said it does matter some people this that and the other thing i was saying well i've never really done a display board for bolt action i should probably give this a go um and then I literally pulled out my big, I got some white construction paper to go on the picture frame that I put my models on on the day um, for your event. And I put out all the models and I started to draw the circles around the bases so I could cut and sink them all. Um, and then had lined up the buildings and the little hills and the trees and had everything set. But then I, I looked at all of these models in white on white bases on a white display board and went, nah. That all matches. That's all the same. Um, and then I took all of those models and all of those vehicles and I put them on the black base that I was going to cut and everything, stick everything to, and it popped. And I went, yep, I'm just going to do that. Um, and so, yeah, um, turns out contrast, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, um, turns out it works sometimes. So, yeah. 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 If you're going to have camouflage guys, put some really bright green flock with flowers on it on the base. Yeah, exactly. Just give it something to, to look different against. I think that's a thing. I know um, Tristan, his partisans, uh, painted those up, which I think Jacoby with Blots he was painting mm. them up for, and um, had this beautiful display board in the, the last event. And you're sort of looking at it, and then you're sort of like, oh, hang on, this guy's in that room. Oh, hang on, this guy's in that tree. Oh, hang on, this guy's... Because it was just blended a yeah. bit too much. Like unless you took the time to actually look, you wouldn't appreciate the paint jobs and, and be able to look at the details and stuff like that. So, yeah. and Ben Llewellyn as well, same thing. Just yeah. his guys just blended in too much with sort of displays and, and that sort of thing. It's, just, it's trying to get that contrast the right way. Yeah. I just think it's handy to just have a tray to carry things around between games. Amen to that. Oh my God, it was so good. <laughs> Just give just something, you know, an event, just give something for at some stage somebody will knock their tray over yeah. and everyone can just do a sharp intake of breath and look around really quickly. Yeah. Oh, it hurts. Oh, man. It does. Every time you look it. at it and you go, oh, the winds, oh, the burn. Oh. Yeah. All right. The well, pain. yeah. Well, let's let's we, let's change gears a little bit. Now, we are talking, we, we have sort of mentioned the fact that the 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 Western Desert book is coming. It's coming very soon. Um, but there's there's a little snafu online, and some some early copies got out electronically, um, and they've been kind of making the rounds. Um, so rather than going through the book, this book, um, as if you listen to my upcoming episode of the Official Warlord Cast, I interviewed the author Roger. It's a, actually a great listen. He explains a lot of his choices um, for you know what's in the book. I highly recommend listening to that. Um, I think it's one of the better interviews I've done. Um, and I don't just say that. I think it's an excellent conversation. He was a wonderful guest. Um, but he talks about how much he covered in the book. It's, I think, the thickest book that Warlords come out for bolt action yet. It's almost 170 pages. It has 19 oh. missions. It has... Oh. Um, including missions to play entirely new types of armies. We have um, new national rules for a bunch of armies. We have new army lists for a bunch of armies. There is the armies of free France in the desert. 
and we get special forces army lists and the missions to play them with a ton of history, with new units. It's a beast of a book. And I know there's been a lot of debate about the Italian rules. Uh, I'm going to be talking to some people um, probably on episode 32 of Cast Ice about those rules um, and talking about some of the Italian formations in that book. Uh, However... My God, there is so much to talk about. So rather than trying to tackle it in one episode like we normally would, I thought we would sort of take a swing at the Western Desert book in bits and pieces. So tonight, given, Lee, that you are an incredibly experienced uh, British player, um, and I've played British a number of times. In fact, my Sikhs are Western Desert themed. um, I thought that you and I could possibly take a whack at the new uh, rules for the Commonwealth armies. Uh, what do you say about that? Yeah, sounds great. All right. Got a, got a copy of the page in front of me. <laughs> me too. All right. Uh, let, where would you like to start? How about we start with my personal favorites, the Indians? How about that? Yeah, I, I think just first, it's oh, sorry. Go ahead. probably worth mentioning these are national characteristics replacements. Yes, so go ahead. So out of the British yeah. book, if you choose, there's five of them available. So it's not your um, national trait where you get your free forward artillery observer. Mm-hmm. It's actually the, the toughest boots, the blood curdling charge, the um, up and atom. And I can't remember the other two, but it's instead of taking one of those, you can choose one of these national characteristics from this book. Uh, and the nations represented are Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, and India. So, yes, I'm I'm rereading that paragraph while we speak. All right. Uh, ah, see, I when I was reading this, I thought these, and I think it's written differently in different places in the Western Desert book, because the way this is written, I think you're right, um, because you replace may either one of the national characteristics or take one of the following national characteristics. So you yeah. can take so some of these. Yeah, some of these nations have multiple characteristics available on, on this page. Yeah. You choose one of them, which makes sense because it's replacing that. For instance, I use uh, Tuffer's Boots pretty yeah. much for my paratroopers all the time. So instead of taking Tuffer's Boots, I could take one of these other options or take one of these other forces. Now, that's interesting because we've – so, for example, if we go to the Indian rules, um, previously the Indians have had um, – had the, these are um, a reissue of the Indian rules that were in the other desert book that we had before. And in those book, they replaced all of the national rules with these rules. So you lost the artillery observer in this book. It appears, as you say, um, you can take one of the national characteristics. Yeah, you're right. Um, okay. So that's, it is different. I misread that. Okay. So the Indian national yes, rules, so- that they had before, um, which they've reissued. Now, previously, they replaced all the national rules, and you could only use them in certain scenarios with certain selectors. With this one, the national characteristic, you're right, it's not national rule. Oh, that's interesting, is unsurpassed bravery. Um, So basically, um, it's whenever an infantry unit or an artillery unit fails a morale check and would otherwise be destroyed, 
destroyed. Um, take this test again and apply the second result. So this is a rule that we have seen with the Soviets and I used a lot on the weekend. Um, that's a great rule. Uh, Lee, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. It's every time I played, uh, so Rob and, and Hari are the two main players that we sort of mm. see around with Indian companies. Um, but yeah, like you say, you remove the artillery observer, but they'd get the unsurprised bravery and the manpower of the empire. So they could get a free unit and then the, the reroll leadership. Now under this, it's saying, well, if you use these lists or this option, you could still have your artillery observer, but you've got to choose one of these two sort of characteristics. Yeah. And of course, the second one you mentioned is the manpower of the empire, manpower. which means ten man rig squad. Yeah, which is yeah. which is great. Um, but what's interesting yeah, is you can purchase points. additional equipment for this section as well. So if you are if you really want to have the LMG in that squad, you get basically a ten man regular squad with an LMG for twenty points. Um, yeah, which I like. I like that. I like that rule a lot. I would prefer to replace all of the national rules. Um, like it had done previously, um, because I just am, I would rather have the 10 dudes than the, um, artillery observer. Um, that's really interesting. Hmm. Mm. All right. Um, well, I'm glad you pointed that out. I totally misread that. Um, well, would you like to talk about the Australians next? Yeah. Uh, so the Australians have two options. One's aggressive patrolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, effectively, what it means is the Australians automatically win the roll-off for who places forward deployers first. Um, so your snipers, observers, spotters, etc. Um, that's in my mind, it's very situational. It's going to be mission-based. It's going to be you need to have those sort of units in your army, and your opponent doesn't to make it really a proper advantage. So mm. I feel it's probably a little bit too situational for me. Um, and the other additional thing is. No enemy that fought to deploy can set up within 18 inches of a unit already deployed instead of 12. And they spot hidden enemies at a range of 18 rather than 12 inches, which, again, very mission-dependent. Yeah. I think if you're playing a series of link campaign games or maybe playing through the missions in the book, uh, there's probably a lot more hidden setup and ambushing and those sort of things, Agreed. where it's probably a bit more relevant. So I think it's um, going to be very specific. Uh, and then this second one they've got is never give up. So in a mission where they are a defender, mm-hmm. the infantry and artillery units count as having fanatics. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I know we've seen that before. I've always been impressed with that one. I feel like depending on your style of play, if you're building a defensive list and you like to play an army that isn't necessarily hyper-aggressive, I think if you can get to a good defensible position around an objective and you can pop that national rule i feel like that is a good one um yeah yeah. it's again a little game specific you've got to get assaulted Mm. so you've got to be the defending player in an assault um to be a fanatic but it's it means you can just grind out people um but if they choose to shoot you off the board then it's not much you're going to be able to do about it as someone who's played a lot of japanese armies where you have fanatic and if you're on an objective people look at assaulting Mm. you going uh, I don't want to do that because you have fanatic. Now, if you all of a sudden have that rule um, and you're defending, that is a hell of a deterrent. People don't like to assault that. And it means that if you can go down with that squad, 
um, they're going to be hard to shoot off, and they're going to be a bastard yep. to dig out and assault. So I think that is a, uh, I think that's a great rule. I mean, it's very characterful, um, and I think it's very effective on the tabletop as well. Yeah, I think giving it to the artillery is probably not as great because you're likely, you know, most of your artillery units got three or four guys. If they get assaulted, you probably only get maybe one round of fanatic benefit out of it before they get mm. wiped anyway. Um, but yeah, it's a good little interesting one, an alternative to Tuff's boots or up and Adam or something like that. So um, yeah, I, I could see people certainly using that one. Right on. Bit of flavor. Well, we have some new ones here that I believe um, for the South Africans. Um, now, they get two possible choices. One is bloody-mindedness, and that's whenever a South African infantry or artillery unit receives a hit from non-HE, uh, place a pin marker as normal. However, if no casualties are caused, the pin is automatically removed. Um, that seems really good. It seems crazy. Um, effectively, the only way to put pin markers on the South African units are going to be hit them with HE or you've got to cause a casualty. So those long range, oh, I'm just going to shoot, I'm going to need sixes to hit you, I'm just going to try and put some pins on, I think you're going to find they're going to be very mobile and not having to worry about leadership and, and giving orders as much yeah. because I think they're going to end up ignoring a lot of pins. Um, I would certainly take the uh spend the points and put a medic in because just the option yeah, of right every now and then they like yeah you're like uh roll a six no you don't um i think that'd just be a bit of a, a multiplier going in on that one um it's an interesting rule to put in um i have absolute zero knowledge on the south africans involvement in the world war ii um i've read up a fair bit of stuff on the Boer war which was early mm. Uh, early in the century, um, pre-World War One, because uh, Australia was involved a bit in that. Mm. Um, but certainly don't know anything about it. So I'm assuming there's sort of some basis behind as a rule. Uh, and then their other rule that they have as an option is quick reaction. Mm. So a South African infantry or artillery unit is, is allowed to Surprise charge rule on page 76 of the Bolt Action Rulebook does not apply. So to me, this means that if they're being assaulted within six inches, obviously um, they're going to be allowed to fire if they want, mm-hmm. take action. Um, and the way I'm reading that is also if they've already taken an action, they can react, always allowed to react. Yeah, that's what sure I'm reading that's going to need too. some clarification. Yeah, that like might if need it a doesn't little. explicitly state... Might need a little bit of clarification as to whether if they've already got an order dice, they can't do it. But if it's within six, it's just ignoring that. Yeah. Okay. South Africans make much more sense now that you've pointed out you take one, not both of those rules. Because yeah. I was looking at the combination oh, of, of be crazy. Yeah. I was looking at them going, that's really good. Um, but no, you're right. And I think by picking one or the other, yeah, that really does help. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, okay, that makes sense. And uh, speaking of some crazy national rules, this makes a lot more sense too. The New Zealander national characteristics. Um, yeah, because they've got three choices here effectively. Is it, isn't it four? Uh, Am I getting that wrong? Steadfast? Uh, no, no, it's three because the – well, the third one's actually talking about the fourth. I think it's just the colouring of the headings. Oh, yes, you're right. You are correct. Because they roll they – they probably shouldn't have had – I don't, yeah, the fourth heading. It's a formatting error, yeah. Anyway, 
it's effectively three options. Um, so yeah, the first one there is steadfast under fire. Uh, so after causing pins for HE fire, mm-hmm. if the target is New Zealand infantry artillery, you halve the number of pins rounding down. So Ooh. I'm not sure what one pin halved round down becomes zero. It always becomes one. Um, normally, I would assume. Yeah. I think it says in the main rule book if you round down, it's always to a minimum of one. Yeah, I could be wrong. So yeah, pretty sure that's in there. probably something that made it clever. Because if you roll for pins got by HE, you can roll one pin. Mm. You halve it, and then it specifically says round down. So it doesn't just say half the number of pins. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, that's probably uh, that's that's an interesting one. So it's HE fire. So if your local med is spamming out a whole bunch of HG, mm-hmm. might be worth taking that as a New Zealand option. Mm. Um, the next one actually for me is probably the most interesting uh, from a tactical point of view. It's good, isn't and it? Yeah, yeah. Superb junior officers. So New Zealand first and second lieutenants get a morale bonus range of 12 inches instead of six. So that's their morale boost of plus one or plus two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the snap to action range remained at six inches. Yeah. So effectively what that means is you can sort of, I suppose, have a bigger bubble for your command bonus for making uh, command checks and order checks and things like that. So I think tactically that's probably got a bit more flexibility than any of the mm-hmm. other sort of options my first thought with that uh, is what if you run that rule with a bunch of inexperienced squads now i'm not saying that that's what new zealanders did mm-hmm. i honestly don't know enough about their history to make that call but just from a tactics rules wise if you had a bunch of inexperienced squads running around and you had a couple of lieutenants for example because you're running two platoons well mm-hmm. then you have you have that morale bonus at a longer range um, and yeah. then that, I think I think that's a big deal because having played against a couple of captains, my God, having like that range of twelve um, with the morale bonus makes a big difference. So yeah. yeah, Lee, you want to talk about Maori or should I? Bubble. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I I think this is probably what's going to get the internet. Uh, it's angry, easy to be honest. <laughs> it's 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 interesting. I think um, certainly if I I think locally or I think if people are going to run the Maori troop rules, mm-hmm. I want to see Maori troops modelled up. Oh yeah, hundred um, so, percent. Yeah. So this is a. Uh, take this as your special characteristic. It means you can take Maori troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means is for each of your infantry or HQ units, uh, for one point per man, the unit gains the formidable fighter trait. So take your normal HQs, your normal infantry units, and they can be upped. So that's not your artillery units. Uh, it's not your weapons teams. I don't think. Do they count? infantry units it's infantry uh, i believe yeah i think they do now this they is why count, yeah. okay this is why i thought that nations were able to get these you got all of these and you replace the nation ones um because it says maori do not benefit from any other new zealand national characteristics uh, yep so um, i think that's just to clarify that you can't take i'm going to take superb junior officers 
but I'm going to make some of my guys Maori troops. Right, but, but in order just... to get Maori troops, don't you have to? Oh no, you're right. Because you choose right. the special rules for Maori, so you're choosing that as the rule. I think this this section here is probably just. Yeah. I can see the intention. I think it yeah. just needs probably not clarified as well as it needs to be. You really have to read sentences with full stops and stuff. I think uh, also yeah. they need to change the heading because the special rule yeah, for Maori colorings. troops is is yeah. written the same way. Like the the name of national rules. It needs to be rules. in a little call out box. Yeah, exactly. A little it needs, call out box. Exactly. So sorry. Go ahead about tell us. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So so the Maori don't yep. benefit from any New Zealand national rule. Instead, they have the blood curdling charge, the up and atom rule, and tough as boots. Yeah. So instead of picking one of those from the British book, uh, you get all three. Um, which effectively makes them, uh, you know, close combat assault craziness. Yeah. Um, you're basically going to be able to charge them without testing from 12 inches. Um, tough as boots, you're going to get additional attacks in combat. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming or hoping that given the time period that this is being set, that they're mostly going to have rifles. So we're not going to have the issue right. of SMGs with extra attacks. Um, with a tough fighter rule as well. So if, if there is a unit loaded out with SMGs, I think you'd want to make no. the Maori troops and let them go. Um, but, yeah, like if you take Maori troops as your option, then you can't take the junior officers or the steadfast under fire. So yeah. I think there is that balance. I just think if somebody wants to make a really aggressive force, mm-hmm. I think your option these days is you uh, take the Maori troops and for a pointer guy you're going to get a, a pretty good payoff, I think, if you want to go out there yeah. and assault people. Well, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure if you're running a reasonably his, historically accurate list, I mean, the Maori troops were, those rules were rolled in with the early war squads, which have one SMG, one LMG. Now, yeah. if you ro- try and roll that rule, for example, on top of, God forbid, Gurkhas, which I'm looking at this, I'm wondering if, you know, by the letter of the law, can, will, will some players, um, I, thankfully not in Australia, typically, um, try and do that? God, I hope not. That would be terrible um, because it's only that one point. Um, I mean, if you're playing reasonable stuff, I don't see that being a problem. Uh, I do yeah, think I that, think, yeah, could be abused yeah. if people are silly. Yeah. Having not read the whole book, um, mm. I'm actually curious as to whether there are specific um, Commonwealth armies in this that says, here's the Australian list, here's New Zealand, here's the South African, here's the Indian. So if you use the New Zealand one, Gurkhas won't be an option. It's going to have set things. So not necessarily a theatre list, but here's the national list. There and isn't. then there's obviously theatre selectors as well. There isn't? There is not. That was in the previous okay. book. Right. And I think what, what ties in with this is, so for example, the Indian characteristics, as we said, came from the old desert book and it was tied to a specific selector. Um, And those rules kind of meant were meant to go together. And so now they're separated and you pick one of them. The New Zealander ones um, were provided by David Hunter, Uber Gruber um, with warlord games. He submitted it and it was turned into a PDF that warlord turned out. Um, And of course the Australian national characteristics uh, were done by I believe 
Brian Cook and Patch. Um, and I think um, Mark Barber tied him up for the Papua New Guinea book. But that those yeah. are back from the old Australian PDF that was distributed by Warlord, but was written by those guys. Anthony may have been a part of that. I, I, I honestly, I wasn't part of the BAA at the time to know who was the... I believe those were the gentlemen behind that list. So um, one of the great things about this book that Roger's done, Roger being the author, is he's taken um, units and he's taken rules from um, a bunch of past articles and books that some of which are very hard to find uh, and people may not know about and taken some stuff from the future that we haven't gotten yet. Uh, I'm looking at some of the units that we see for the British and the Germans, um, and they're included in this book. And so it really does bring a lot of things together. And you also, I mean, sometimes you get inconsistencies in books where a list might appear here and a list might appear there, and they may appear to be contradictory. Well, Roger's really gone out of his way to try and make sure that doesn't happen with this book. Everything's consistent across bolt action. Um, you're not getting any weird head scratchers saying, well, wh- why is this one here like this? But this vehicle is very similar to this other one that appeared in another book, and yet they're like 50 points different. Um, yeah. it's very. We get a lot of great consistency. Um, now, the Commonwealth lists that do appear in the, the Western Desert book, um, and I don't have them in front of me right now, but I have read them. Um, they have to do with specific types of units. Um, so there's like the jock column now, if we, the, which is named after the gentleman. So in the Desert War, there was this idea that British tanks would go out and battle, and then um, you know all the support troops would hang back and defend um, their camp. And then at the end of the day, after a hard fight, the chaps would drive their tanks back into camp and relax for the evening um, while being guarded by the support troops. Well, this guy Jacques said, well, I'm sitting around here with a lot of able-bodied folks. Um, We've got support weapons. We've got infantry. We've got all these things, armored cars even. What don't we have? We don't really have tanks. Um, So if you take that selector, you can take just about everything in the British list for that time period. um, But there is no um, tanks. Meanwhile, there's an armored car selector where you can take, um, you know, because, for example, cavalry, those troops went off their horses and then they for a while they were, you know, debonair gentlemen shooting around the desert in armored cars um, with some support troops. Well, that's another selector you can take. So a lot of these selectors line up with that. And of course, there's the armored platoon and a bunch of other support type platoons. What's interesting is each one of those theater selectors gets almost a bonus national rule tagged on to it for using that selector. Like the Stalingrad one, you can pay extra points to get Fnatic for the Soviets. These yep. are, you don't pay extra points and they're not game-breaking. Um, not to say that the Stalingrad one is, but I know a lot of people talk about it. They're just minor tweaks that give the army a little more flavor um, that if you are going to narrow your army choice to that particular um, list of units, then you might get a little bonus that lines up with the flavor of that, if that makes sense. Um, so we don't get national lists. 
but the nationalists are, I mean, we get these characteristics so you can theme other lists and take generic platoons so that you can use an Indian army, for example. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that yeah. well? Yeah, yeah. It's within the theater list and the options. And I think, I think the interesting thing will be see what sort of forces people come up with and uh, what sort of sees play. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there, there is another British list in this book that should be mentioned. Um, I know a lot of people in the past have loved the idea of the LRDG. I mean, I love it. I love the idea. Clearly, um, I had a podcast named after it for years. Um, however, um, a lot of people have said, the even though there is a selector... The selector doesn't necessarily, um, it's very limiting. It, it's hard to make a list for an LRDG that isn't sort of same samey as itself. And the national rules don't usually line up. LRDG guys weren't shooting around the desert with a free artillery observer in their ranks, right? Um, yeah. There is a new set of rules for um, the LRDG. Um, and there is, uh, they get their own national rules, they get their own s- units, they get their own selector. Um, it really does take them out of the box um, and sort of gives them a life of their own. Um, likewise, their Italian counterparts, uh, both the Auto Sahariana and um, their later AS42 riding buddies are in there. Um, there's also a Oh, there's SAS selectors and rules, um, and yeah, and there's a special German special forces Brandenburger unit, um, Hecker, Hecker's troops, um, Kampgruf Hecker um, is in that book. So there's just a ton of stuff. But one of the other things, um, while I'm on the subject, and I'm sure I'll mention it when we get into the LRDG and the Auto Sahariana in more detail, is one of the missions in that book. Um, and this just impresses me. It's a simple little thing, but I, I just love that it's there. Is lists like that don't often have missions that you can play them without it being a little weird sometimes. Like shoehorning an army like that into a normal mission doesn't always work. Um, they're sort of not conventional forces. Um, and what this book gives us is a mission, a raider's mission. Um, and I love that. And it's written in broadly with alternative sets of rules so you can adapt it to other, um, other theaters, to other armies, um, and you can play it again and again and, get, and have different objectives and outcomes. And I just think that's really clever, the way it's done. And I, I believe Sam from the Down Order podcast had his thumbprint on that particular mission. Uh, and if so, I really do take my hat off to him um, for that, because that is one of, as someone who likes to write missions, I read that and went, oh yeah, that's a keeper. I like oh, that finished. mission. So, uh, and apparently, um, Lee, your wife is in the background asking if you're finished. Yes, she is. <laughs> I think the uh, podcast has been going for our required hour and a half. That's right. <laughs> So I, I believe then, Lee, does that mean that uh, we are wrapping up? I, I think it's a good point for us to wrap up. I, I think, think it is. Um, I think I need to go order this new book. Yes. <laughs> from the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, always had some interest in North Africa. I, as I said to you earlier, um, before we hit the podcast, I've um, bought some 
uh, Desert Terrain recently that mm. was on sale. Um, so my intention is to make a desert table, nice. um, partially just to contribute to the, the community when we run events and mm-hmm. have something to bring along because uh, I haven't sort of produced any tables for a long time. Uh, but, yeah, also sort of that interest in North Africa, I think, I've got a maybe for 2021. Maybe that'll be my. I might do a North Africa force. Fantastic. Look forward to seeing it, man. Because uh, the way you do armies, that is going to be beautiful. Yeah, we just got to start planning it now. That's right. That's right. Well, right on. <laughs> Well, Lee, again, um, thank you again for running such an awesome event. Uh, you really have reinvigorated my, uh, my, my, got my juices flowing, so to speak. Um, I'm, my mouth is watering for some bolt action goodness. And uh, I'm looking at the big pile of smogs, hordes, models that I'm staring at. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And it's all down to you, sir. So thank you. No problem. And thank you very much for coming on again. It is always a pleasure having you, and I'm I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Sure we will. I'll catch you later. Right on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as always, uh, we do appreciate that podcasts don't necessarily cost you money, um, but they do uh, – they're time, and time is precious, and sometimes – Time is more precious than money to us these days. Um, they are definitely that for me at the moment. I don't feel like I have two seconds to rub together. Um, but as always, um, we would like to thank you very much for spending your time with us this fine evening. Um, if you have feedback, please find us on Facebook under the Land O Misfit Toys slash the Home of the Cast Dice podcast, or just type into the Facebook search bar Cast Dice C A S. T-D-I-C-E, and you'll find us. Uh, My name is Brad, and I will be the one checking the messages. For those of us who, or those of you who have been giving us feedback, uh, I love the messages. Thank you so much, guys. Um, I've been loving the Titanicus content that I've been getting, too. Stop tempting me. Um, I'm sure I'm going to try it soon, but God, I cannot afford $500 for a core game in Australia. Blah. Ugh. Anyway, um, that aside, I think it is time for us to say goodnight. And as always, I have to say, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope that your beverages are cold. But when you are playing the games that we love more than anything else, I hope that you are having fun. This is Cast Dice saying goodnight.
Stand down the snakes and 